Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, help us to know your ways. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all day long. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, named Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in my hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. And thank you, Andrea. We uh, celebrated Easter two weeks ago today. You remember? Two weeks all the way back two weeks ago. Um, We moved on yet. Anybody still in the Easter spirit? I would wager that most of us have probably actually moved on. That seems like part of human nature. We just move on quickly. Uh, But this morning, we're actually going to return a little bit to Easter. Not Easter per se, but the period in the week immediately following Easter, the week after Easter. And we're doing this through, um, through looking at Thomas. Now, I should, um, right at the outset, I should add, this, this sermon, if, if belief is something that comes pretty naturally to you, if you don't really have a whole lot of doubts or skepticisms naturally or questions, then um, this sermon might just not hit home for you. Um, if you do find yourself doubting or skeptical or wondering, like, can, can any of this even be true? Uh, I think you might find a friend this morning in Thomas. And that's why we're going to look at Thomas very, very distinctly this morning. Of Jesus' 12 original disciples, Thomas probably has the most famous and the most unfortunate nickname. Can you imagine being one of Jesus' original 12 and you're known for your doubt? That you don't actually believe what you're doing or what you're saying. Doubting Thomas, we call him. Uh, I was reading a little more about Thomas this week, and one commentator calls him loyal but pessimistic. I love that description. He's loyal, but he's pessimistic, which means that he would probably describe himself as a realist because pessimists describe themselves as realists. Um, so whether you want to call him a pessimist or a realist, that's up to you. He's the type that, that needs hard, verifiable proof. Uh, in some ways, he's, he's, kind of, he's kind of like this chronic... Eeyore character, just always a little down, always a little depressed, always seeing the downside of things. And yet, we see in Thomas, at the end of John, I think one of the most striking examples 
of faith. Not faith apart from doubt, but faith through his doubt. Now I want to set the scene a little bit right as we get started. Uh, We learn through the story, this actually takes place at two times. The first little scene takes place Easter evening. So that morning, all the disciples have just found out that the tomb is empty. Same Easter day. And the second scene occurs one week later, the Sunday after that. That first Sunday, Easter evening, all of Jesus' disciples, minus Thomas, and of course minus Judas, are together, and Jesus appears to his disciples. And for some reason, we don't know why, but for some reason, Thomas isn't there. Later that evening, Jesus apparently leaves, and Thomas shows up. He shows up after Jesus leaves, so he hasn't, he hasn't seen Jesus. And the disciples, the other, the other uh, now ten, say, you won't believe, we just saw Jesus. And Thomas basically responds, I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I see it, which is not a bad response. In that moment, because everybody, know, they, know, they knew just as well then as we know now that dead people don't come back to life. Like it's just, they know it. He was dead. They saw him. And Thomas doesn't only say, I'll believe it when I see it. He actually takes it one step further and says, I'll believe it when I feel it. And I'm going to get a little nitpicky here with the text because it will actually teach us something. I want want you to pay attention. If you have your Bible open or if you're following in the program, you can look at verse 25 here. Thomas makes a threefold demand, so to speak. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hand, I want to see the nail marks in his hand, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. He says he wants to do three specific things. I want to see the nail marks in his hand. I want to feel the nail marks in his hand. And I want to feel the wound in his side. Remember when Jesus was crucified, they speared him in his side. And that's like, let's just name it, that's weird. I don't know how to explain that, except that's, I don't know, that's just what he said. Now remember, this is the evening of Easter Sunday. Jesus is not there at this point. He's left. And all of a sudden, the narrator, we believe it's John, jumps ahead a week in verse 26. He says, a week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among him. I don't know how he did that. And he said, peace be with you. And you get to verse 27. And then Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. That's the second thing Thomas asked for. And Thomas, see my hands. That's the first thing he asked for. And Thomas, reach out your hand and put it into my side. That's the third thing. Now, if you'll remember, Jesus was not there when Thomas made those three specific demands, and yet he invites Thomas to experience him in the exact three ways that Thomas insists that he needed a week ago. This morning, we're spending some time unpacking and thinking about Thomas. Outside of this account, we know very little about him. The only time he gets any speaking lines in any of the four Gospels is in John. In all the others, he's just mentioned by name. And in John, he only gets four speaking lines, and two of them are here. There are only two other places. We don't know much about him. 
But let me point you to a couple of the other things we do know about him just to help us get a better picture of who exactly Thomas is. In John 11, Jesus tells the disciples that they're going to go back to Judea. This is the famous story when he raises Lazarus from the dead. He's heard his friend Lazarus is sick and he's going to go. And they have to go back to a region named Judea. Now, Jesus had almost just gotten killed in Judea. And so Thomas, when he hears Jesus say, we're going back to this place where we almost just got killed, Thomas says out loud what everybody else is thinking, which is this. This is John 11, verse 16. Well, let's go with him so we can die with him. Isn't that just inspiring? <laughs> this is Thomas, okay? This, this is consistent. He's pessimistic. And let me point out to you in that moment, okay, maybe he's pessimistic. Maybe he's an Eeyore. He's willing to go. He's willing to go. And by the way, that's John 11, verse 16. And only nine verses later, Jesus goes back and talks to Martha. Remember, they have this conversation about resurrection. And Jesus says to Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Three chapters later in John 14, Jesus tells his disciples very cryptically, it's really hard, I'm still not totally sure what Jesus even means by this, but in John 14, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And Thomas, again, just kind of says what's on everybody's mind. He says, Lord, we don't don't know where you're going. Like, how, how do we know the way? How do we get there? Now, again, let me point out that he may not know where he's going, but he, he seems to genuinely want to follow Jesus. And the very next verse is John 14, 6, when Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. You notice that, by the way, that Thomas gets four speaking lines in the whole New Testament, and two of them are almost immediate prefaces to two of seven Jesus, of Jesus' famous I am statements that we've spent the last Lent season looking at. Lastly, we have Thomas here in John 20, expressing incredible skepticism. Jesus can't be alive. I need to see the wound in his hand. I need to actually put my finger in that wound and my hand in his side before I will believe. And yet, we learn through Thomas that faith and skepticism, faith and doubt are not enemies They're much closer than that. In fact, you might call them bedfellows. We learn through Thomas that faith is not the absence of skepticism. Faith is not the absence of doubt. But faith means taking the next step, even when our doubt is the thickest. Let's consider that a little more. We're back in John 20. This is the story that Andrea read this morning. Jesus reappears to the 11. This time Thomas is there. What do you think is going through Thomas's mind? Try to just put yourself in his shoes. Try to get inside his head. Last week, Thomas just made this almost like a speech. It's almost dripping with bravado the way he says it. Unless I see it and touch it, I won't believe it. And now, here Jesus is with the nail marks in his hands, probably actually his wrists, and with the wound in his side, he can see. 
And now Jesus is inviting him to touch his wounds, the very thing that Thomas said he needed. How do you think he might be feeling? Isn't it something that with Thomas, we see that Jesus does not criticize our skepticism? Jesus doesn't criticize Thomas's skepticism. You notice that? It's almost as if he welcomes it. It's almost as if Jesus welcomes Thomas and invites Thomas to follow him even in his skepticism and in his doubt. We reflected a little bit more on this during our sunrise service a couple weeks ago during Easter, that Jesus doesn't criticize Thomas. He could have told Thomas, Thomas, you have little faith. And that wouldn't have been the first time in the scriptures that he says that. He could have said, Thomas, you just need to believe. Thomas, what is wrong with you? Thomas, why can't you believe? Thomas, I told you over and over, I must die and then rise again, and here I am. Why is that so hard for you to believe? Jesus never does any of that. You notice that? Jesus doesn't say, Thomas, you just need to have blind faith. No, instead, he meets Thomas right where Thomas is at. It seems Thomas is the type, you know, some people trust and some people need to trust and verify. Thomas is the type who, who trusts but has to verify. And to Thomas, Jesus says, fine, verify. Verify. He invites it. Isn't that, for those of you who are skeptics, I hope, good news? Consider this, that Thomas the skeptic, doubting Thomas, finds a deep home in Jesus who patiently invites Thomas to come to him, skepticism and all. He doesn't ask Thomas to lay aside his skepticism or lay aside his doubt in order to come to him. Jesus doesn't just tolerate our skepticism. He welcomes it. He welcomes it. Why? Well, for a number of reasons, one of which is he can hold up to it. Jesus knows that he can hold up to the most withering scrutiny. I mean, even if you just consider the timing, Jesus Jesus timed his second appearance for when he knew that Thomas would be there with his questions. He wanted Thomas there with his questions, with his doubt, with his skepticism. And he wanted to interact with Thomas in his skepticism so that Thomas's questions could be answered. We mentioned this, we pre- I didn't, but uh, Caleb Davis preached on this earlier in the Lent season. If Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and it's important to note, Jesus doesn't just say, I am true, but he says, I am truth. I am truth itself. I am the way and the truth and the life. If he's, if he's right, if he's telling the truth about being the truth, this is getting meta, I know, then there is no question you can ask of Jesus. There's no skepticism you can express that goes too far. If Jesus really is the truth, 
then you can ask anything of him and he can weather it. There's no question that's inappropriate if it's an honest question. And Jesus does not worry about your doubt. Jesus is not up there concerned like, oh gosh, what if they don't believe in me? No, he doesn't, he's not worried that you might ask him that one question that he just doesn't have an answer for. If he did worry about those things, he wouldn't be truth. His shoulders are broad. He, he can take it. He can take our doubt. He wants to take our doubt. And consider this, if you are the type who's more skeptical, and again, I know I'm preaching more to people who are more skeptical this morning than those who aren't. And by the way, if you're not a skeptic, that's, that's fine. But if you are, have you considered that, that Jesus made you that way? Have you considered that he, he actually made you with your skepticism and with your desire to trust and verify, and with that insistence that you need to see hard facts and see it in action. And he made you with those desires so that he can meet you in those desires. If you have a bent towards skepticism and a bent towards doubt, do you realize that God actually made you that way? In Psalm 139, we learn that God knit us together in our mother's womb. Now that's, that's metaphor and yet the truth of it is deep. That all of your quirks and all of your personality traits and the way that you're wired, God made you that way and he wants to meet you as he made you. He made you as you are and he wants to meet you where you are, which means If you're a skeptic, he wants to meet you even in your skepticism and even in your doubt, as he did with Thomas. And as he did with Thomas, he will patiently sit with you even as you voice your most rigorous questions. You may not get the answer that you're expecting. I can almost promise, actually. (laughs) He never gives, Jesus never gives us the answer that we're expecting. But it's likely that when you're patient and honestly curious enough that you get more than you're expecting. You get Jesus himself. I noted earlier that, that, um, I, I just mentioned this briefly, that Jesus is not only true, but he is truth. That's an important distinction to make, believe it or not. If he's true, then, then truth, I'm going to get a little bit heady here for just a minute, but just indulge me. If he's true, that means that truth is this kind of abstract concept, and Jesus is separate from it, but subscribes to it. And so that thing is true of Jesus, and he can either be true or not true. But if he is truth, then everything about him is truth just because it comes from him. If Jesus is truth and not only true, here's why that matters. If Jesus is truth and not only true, then when we seek truth, we find Jesus. You see? Jesus, the truth, wants you to find him. And when you seek truth, you will find the way and the truth 
and the life. Ask and it will be given to you, he says. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. You don't have to be afraid of your doubt. You don't have to feel like your doubt makes you an outlier or that something's wrong with you because Jesus isn't afraid of your doubt. He's not afraid of your uncertainty. He's not afraid of your unbelief. He's not afraid of all those lingering questions and all of those what-ifs and how can this possibly be true? This doesn't even seem to add up. He simply invites you just as he invited his disciples towards the beginning of John's gospel and as he invites Thomas with his doubt, come and see. Come and see. Test me, in a sense. Come and see. To Thomas, Not only come and see, but come and touch. You know, it's interesting. I'm not sure exactly what to make of this, but John never tells us whether Tom, Thomas, Tom, I can't call him Tom, whether, (laughs) John never tells us whether Thomas takes Jesus up on this offer. Jesus invites Thomas. You, You see, okay, we know he saw. We don't know if Thomas actually got his fingers bloody. I wonder. I wonder if maybe he didn't need to. And maybe he did. I don't know. Maybe he did need to. Whether he did or didn't, whether he did need to or didn't need to, we do know that when Thomas heard Jesus, who had heard him, and when Thomas saw Jesus, who had seen him, he responded very simply, My Lord and my God, That whatever it was, was enough. When Jesus meets us, it is enough. Um, Some of you, a lot of you are are new to this church and you you are impoverished because you never got to meet Ramsey Michaels. And those of you who are chuckling knew Ramsey Michaels. Ramsey was a member of our church family. He died in January 2020. And he was a, he was I'm not exaggerating, a a world-renowned New Testament scholar, and his expertise was on the Gospel of John. So I was reading through Ramsey's commentary on John uh, this week, just on this little section. By the way, this, his, I should say, his last commentary on John, it was his third or fourth, and this one was a thousand pages. I mean, it's a doorstopper of a book. And, um, And Ramsey points out in his commentary on John that aside from the narrator, In the whole Gospel of John, aside from the narrator, Thomas, in this moment, is the very first person to call Jesus God. Doubting Thomas, Thomas the skeptic, Thomas who says, I'll believe it when I see it, I'll believe it when I touch it, but I will not believe other than that, becomes the very first person in the whole Gospel of John, aside from the narrator, to call Jesus God my Lord and my God. You see, once Jesus meets Thomas in his doubt, Thomas inevitably responds. When Jesus meets you, he demands a response. And I I don't mean that so much as like he commands, you must, like in a finger wagging, you must respond yes or no. No, like think of it more as an inevitability. In other words, you can't meet Jesus and not respond. You cannot see and taste and meet Jesus and not be moved to a response. 
It can be positive or it can be negative, but you will respond. You could think about it this way. Show me someone who feels just kind of like ho-hum about Jesus. I'll go so far as to say, I'll show you someone who's never met Jesus. But when we meet Jesus, the meeting itself and he as a person himself, it just demands a response. This became crystal clear to me about a month ago. I was talking with someone and just having the, the type of conversation that's my absolute favorite kind of conversation to have. Uh, talking with someone, and he told me, he said, I've just committed to follow Jesus. I think this is, wow, tell me more about that. And so we, we had this great conversation. And later on in the conversation, he said, you know, I, I'm just, I still got to figure some stuff out, and I'm just not completely sure who Jesus is. And it kind of perked my ears up, and I said, wait a minute, what? And so I asked, I said, you, you told me earlier that you, like, this is a real commitment. And he emphasized, this is a life commitment to follow Jesus. And yet, you're just telling me that you don't actually know who Jesus is. Help me understand how those two work together. Like, how can you, how can you commit to following somebody that you don't know who he is? And he responded, and he said, I'm not sure. You know, I still have so many questions about Jesus, but there's something about him that's so compelling that I just have to follow him. And that struck me as really odd for a few seconds because I'm still wondering, like, how, why would you follow someone you don't even know who he is? And a few seconds later, it hit me. I think he has greater faith than I do. Wouldn't you agree that it takes greater faith to follow a Jesus you've only just met and barely know? than it does to follow a Jesus with whom you've been familiar for a long time. That's faith. And there's skepticism and there's doubt and there's questions all wrapped up into it. Yes, but that's faith. They're not opposites. They're not oil and water. They actually are closely interwoven. And I thought of Jesus' words when Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You notice how Jesus tells Thomas at the very end of the passage, he says, you've seen me, because you've seen, you believed. And that's good, by the way. Like, praise God, that's good. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now, Jesus is not knocking Thomas's faith. He's not interested in, it's not really something you can or should quantify and compare and who has more and who has, left, has less, and that's, that's just not helpful. He's simply affirming, none of us today, you, me, none of us, has, uh, to my knowledge, has ever actually like seen Jesus in the flesh. None of us has actually touched, like sunk our fingers into Jesus's flesh. Someday, we will, we trust, but none of us has. That day hasn't come yet. Jesus affirms, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. We don't know exactly how all of these things play together. We, we can't. And it would be, in a sense, it would be, I don't know, dishonest to try to preach a sermon about doubt <laughs> and then try to tidy everything up. So it's a good thing, because I can't. I don't know how to tidy everything up. 
but I know that there is something about meeting Jesus, God who put skin on, who lived and who died as a ransom for our sin, and then who rose again from the dead. All of it is too good to be true. All of it is too good to be true. And yet somehow when we meet Jesus, the truth, we start to realize that he is true, that he is truth. Don't let your doubt, don't let your questions, don't let your skepticisms keep you, excuse me, those things keep you from Jesus. Let Jesus draw you to himself with your questions and with your skepticisms and with your doubt. Let him prove to you that he is the truth. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm even, I'm even struck as I um, think and talk and preach that <laughs> the, whole, the whole story we believe is, is um, there are parts of it that seem too good to be true. And it brings up doubts and questions of my own. How can this even be? And surely if we rely on ourselves, if we try to will ourselves to believe, we'll probably find ourselves falling short. But we need your mercy. We need you to meet us. And we need you to open our eyes. And we need you to reveal yourself to us and to invite us even to satisfy some of our doubts. So would you do that for everyone here this morning and for me? Would you meet us wherever we are, whether we've been walking with you for decades or whether we're still not convinced? Meet us right where we are and prove to us that you, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, are truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.